As men, we can become preoccupied with financial success. I've certainly felt that at times myself. But the team and I have designed a quiz that's going to help you improve your intentions to achieve better results for your career and business. And there's a link to it in the show notes. I'll tell you more at the end of this episode. But for now, enjoy listening. I got into the house and the first thing I said is, what's going on? Really panicked. The police officer, I recalled, looked like she was struggling. She just looked worried. I knew straight away then. Welcome to Stories of Men, Beneath the Surface. I'm Alex Melia. Join me as we discover what it means to be a man in the modern era. This episode is about how tragedy can come at you from out of the blue to completely change the rest of your life as you know it. Dale Pollock comes from Lee, which is in Greater Manchester, the next town to me. In 2008, aged 17, he decided to drop out of college. He decided that the academic path wasn't right for him. But without a sense of purpose, he began to struggle. When Dale wasn't working at KFC, he was smoking weed and playing FIFA with his older mates. One evening after dropping out of college, he was driving in his car. I got a phone call from my mum. And I could tell with the tone of her voice, something wasn't right. The only thing she said to me was, you need to come home, it's serious. All sorts is going through my mind. I pushed her on the call to give me more information, but she said, you just need to come home. That was it. I was panicked. I was clearly panicked. I got that kind of sinking feeling in your heart. I remember my palms feeling slightly sweaty. I quickly got home as quick as I could. I was literally five minutes from home. I think I did the journey in two minutes, maybe. I remember arriving home and running up the front path. I could already see a police officer sat on the coach. The sister who's closest in age to me was sat on the coach together with my mum, my dad and this police officer. I got into the house and the first thing I said is, what's going on? Really panicked. The police officer, I recalled, looked like she was struggling. She just looked worried. She looked upset herself. She certainly looked distressed. I said, what's going on, Mum? She said, it's the worst. It's Nigel. Nigel being my, my brother, the eldest of the five siblings, who at the time was 34. Nigel had always had issues with alcohol abuse. I knew straight away then. My mum burst into tears. My sister consoling her. My sister was sobbing her eyes out, distraught completely. My dad has never shown emotion. And he just kind of sat there with his hands crossed, leant slightly forward and almost shaking his head. They didn't say the actual words, but unfortunately my brother, my brother had died. And I was pushing at that point in time to know what had happened almost immediately. And everybody wanted to keep it from me. The reason they wanted to keep it from me is that he'd actually died a, a number of days before and they phoned, phoned him in not the best of states in his council flat. I remember just being in shock, almost disbelief. It certainly didn't sink in on that day. We have a very large family, um, both on my mum's and dad's side. So the funeral was, was quite a large event. And I was one of the coffin bearers. So I carried his, carried his coffin to his eventual resting place. I cannot remember a great deal about the funeral apart from my mother 
that's the only person I was worried about was my mum. I could see visibly, emotionally, she was, she looked, she looked dead. She looked completely devoid of any hope. She looked pale. And my mum's always been a very, very strong person, probably the rock of the family. And seeing her like that actually devastated me. And post the funeral was probably the turning point in my life where I thought, I need to do something with my life. I need to get a career, not waste myself. So what happened after the funeral? What was the catalyst for that thought? I subsequently went back to my mum and dad's house at this point, came away from the, the wake. And that was when I had a bit of a moment of reflection. That was when I kind of sat there and let the thoughts process through my mind properly. I was sat in my mum and dad's living room. So my mum and dad's living room is, it's always been the hub of the family. No matter whether my sisters have moved out or whether they come back, whenever we all came together, we all sat in the living room together on, on the two couches in the living room. I was sat on the, the slightly bigger of the two couches and I was just letting my thoughts run through my own mind. And that was the first time I cried. I didn't, didn't cry at the funeral. And it kind of all came flooding out of me. I think it's because I probably felt scared to cry at the funeral. I felt like I had to be a bit of a man. Whatever you describe that as in this day and age, it certainly wasn't being a man, keeping my emotions inside. But that's how I felt I had to act in my immature state at 17. That's how I deemed a man should act. And it was the first time I was alone and I, I kind of let, let it all out a little bit. And all I could think about was my mum. That is a whole thing I could think about was how upset she was, how distraught she was, uh, probably how disappointed she was as well. She just looked she, devastated is the only way I can describe it. It sounds almost cliche, but I genuinely made a promise to myself at that time that I certainly wouldn't put my mum through anything like that for the rest of my life. And I think what I really wanted to do at that point was was make them proud. Make them proud that I could achieve something in my life. It must be awful to lose a child before before you go yourself. And I can only imagine that my mum at that point was thinking she'd failed. That's how she was kind of coming across. She was she was saying to us she feels like she's failed and feels like she's not done her duties as a mother properly and um, it's just an awful thing to hear when you're in that living room and you you make that promise to yourself is it something you say out loud is it something you say in your mind is it an affirmation that i will make my parents proud i won't put my mother through that what was it it was certainly still in my mind i, I didn't didn't say it out loud i felt a little bit angry it was such a weird feeling and i know that sounds strange that you would feel anger at that point in your life but i certainly felt like i was releasing some anger like oh this was not supposed to happen i was shaking visibly but the thing i wanted to do then was spring into action so i'd almost channeled a little bit of that anger into wanting to wanting to get out there and, and go and find myself a job and and achieve something with my life and your life was very different after that day I think that's what gave me a bit of an inner drive. I was always relatively self-motivated in terms of business and earning money, whether that be legal or illegal in my younger years. 
But I was always driven to do it. And I always saw that as my duty. I think the reason I saw it as my duty is I saw myself or the males in the family as providers. And that's really all I was getting down to, that primal instinct to, to provide and protect people. My father definitely has the same instinct. He's the kind of guy, no matter how much or how little he has, he'll give it to all. He'll give all of it to his family. And I kind of feel I've got that that trait in me. So, post the funeral, I actually went to Connections, if you remember it, um, which was best way of describing it: job centre for the youth. <laughs> and I wanted an apprenticeship. Uh, I'd kind of read a little bit about them and decided this is for me. I didn't enjoy conventional education per se i wanted to be doing things and earning money and and just growing as an individual um so i went in with my cv the lady behind the counter uh she looked a little bit confused at why i was there when she saw my cv i said i don't really know what i want to do i just know i want an apprenticeship so i want to work and learn at the same time i feel like that would be a good mix for me um so I was thinking plumbing, electrician, something along those lines. And the, the lady chuckled actually behind the desk. She chuckled and said, I, I don't I don't think that's for you. I said, oh, right, why? I was a little bit confused. I said, there are other apprenticeships that might be more in line with your achievements so far. Because I did score well in GCSEs, um, no doubt about that. And she actually brought up there and then on screen an accounts apprenticeship and me being the brash 17-year-old I was, went, just apply me for that one. That was literally it. I went to the interview two weeks later and was offered the job the next day. After the apprenticeship then, what was the journey that got you to where you are today? The apprenticeship's three years. It's a traditional apprenticeship, so you get day release to college. So I was at a very small accounting firm in Wigan at the time. I was kind of thankful to have a job. The year now is between 2008 and 2011, the whole world had crashed in terms of the economy. I just felt lucky to have a career. Now, by this point, I'd met my no very long-term girlfriend, Tess. So things were falling into place a little bit by the age of 20. I'd finished my apprenticeship. I'd just started chartered accountancy studies. I then decided <laughs> through chartered tax advisor studies as well, which took another about year to 18 months. So a long, arduous process. You're talking eight years of solid training whilst whilst working alongside us so wasn't the easiest path i'm glad i stuck it out now i don't know how i stuck it out it's the honest answer i'm not sure i've got the aptitude for it now or appetite <laughs> but i managed to get through it mate so it was um, it was good it's amazing to see where you were and where you know where you got to and i remember going to connections when i was about 16 17 18 and getting absolutely nowhere as you say, it's the job centre for the youth. Sort of the embarrassment or the shame of walking in there. And also as well, when you see someone from the same school as you in there and you look at each other and you both look away and you don't say hello and, and feeling that embarrassment. Did you ever have that situation where you, you recognise people in there? I did indeed. So I actually walked out of Connections and I saw a friend of mine from school and we joked with each other. We made a bit of a joke about it, say, this is worse than coming out of the sexual health clinic <laughs> at the time. It's almost like being caught coming out of the sexual health clinic. I was like, oh, really embarrassed. And I look back and think, how emotionally immature were we to think that was embarrassing? But I'll tell you, a, a better representation of feeling embarrassed was 
I was on my first ever day home as a chartered accountant. My mum had cobbled together some, as sorry, a trainee accountant. My mum had cobbled together some money and bought me a suit. Um, definitely didn't fit me. It was awful, um, but it was the best we could do at the time. So I was very thankful for it. And I was driving home in said clapped out Fiat Punto. And I stopped at the traffic lights and a guy who has always lived on the same council estate as me pulled up on a, a mountain bike at the side of my car. And I went down the window to say hello, as you do. And he said, he swore, so I won't do that on the podcast. He said, where have you been, Dale? I said, oh, I've just, just finished work. I've got a job. He went, all oh, right. I thought you'd been to court. That's all people usually do from Wesley when they're, <laughs> when they're in a suit. <laughs> and that was actually probably more embarrassing at the time than coming out of connections because it wasn't seen as the in thing where I grew up to have a normal job. Yeah. You, you were you were supposed to be committing crime and and following a, <laughs> a, a well trodden a well trodden but illegal path. Ultimately, that's what most people do in that area. So I still remember it because I almost chuckled driving off, thinking, "This is crazy. I can't believe I've got a job as an accountant." <laughs> Well, you're, you're the product of your environment. So if that environment that you're used to, people are wearing suits because they've been to court, then that becomes the norm. So you're the anomaly. You're wearing a suit because you're, a, you're an accountant. Did you start to feel differently within yourself that you were different to the people on the estate from doing that? And were you still hanging around with the same lads? It's a good question. I was at first, and that this is probably where me as an individual began to change. So I still very much felt like that council estate kid masquerading as somebody else um i didn't feel like an accountant it was strange i suppose as my career slowly started to evolve in that first year or so i was 17 turning 18 and i started to to go out drinking at the weekends go to go to local pubs bars clubs and i met a couple of different lads there's a couple of lads who i went to school with who weren't from the estate and actually had normal families whatever you describe as normal but what i would describe as normal was mum and dad had a job they had a house and a mortgage it was all rosy i'd never been exposed to that previously and i began to go out with these lads and we met another group of lads and a couple of other groups and we all started to i would say hang about together you know we were we were all pals at that point in time and i could see clearly then i had two distinct groups of friends i had the estate group of friends who also were, some of them were family. And I had this new group of friends. All these guys had jobs. They had aspirations. They wanted to achieve something. And I suppose my innate ability to work out, actually, I think this is, I think this is the way to go. And it wasn't nice. I, I just stopped hanging about with, with the people I'd hung about with my whole life. And I felt a little bit lonely. I certainly did. I felt lonely at that point in time because I didn't really know these new guys too well. And I'd kind of binned off and I felt like I betrayed people. I knew deep down that was going to be for the best long term. So it's just a bit of a turning point again in, in my life where I decided to make a decision that could have gone one way or the other. Mm. I've had difficulties with sort of letting go of friends that weren't serving me back back at home in Atherton and that decision has always paid off in the long run. But did you ever have that experience yourself where you had to let go of, of certain friends that weren't serving you? And and what was what was the reaction to that from them? I did. I think the reaction from them was 
subdued. They probably weren't too concerned. <laughs> um, they they would make comments, so I would see them back at family parties, um, mutual contacts and things like that. Um, so if somebody turned 40 on the estate or 30, there'd be a party and I would attend. Um, they would make comments, oh, Dale's too good for us. He doesn't want to hang about with us anymore. And I'd just laugh about it. I think that's actually come full circle now, Alex. We've gone the whole way around that where they didn't get it at first. I was nervous about it about moving in a different direction and i would say 99 percent of people i've known since being a child know are they're probably proud of what i've managed to achieve and they get it now they didn't back then i think we're all emotionally immature back then as well i think that's a, a good way of putting it we were young and they were just thinking oh dale wants to hang about with these new shiny friends it was wasn't really that it was dale wants to to achieve something different. He doesn't want to live on the estate for the rest of his life. I just will not let things get in the way of me. And I've always been like, I'm, I'm stubborn. I can be a handful to deal with when I don't get my own way, or used to be, certainly when I was younger. I always had a desire to prove people wrong. So whether that be sports when I was younger, but I always had that desire to just tunnel vision where I wanted to be. And that certainly helped me get through the studies. 15 exams to get through. It's two exams every six months. Bang. I know what I need to do. I got a lot of stick from a lot of people throughout those first six years. I don't know if you know this, but the stat that is really interesting to me is white working class boys have the worst results in the country, followed quite closely by white working class girls. So it's definitely an issue, I suppose. But then again, if you're from the estates that we're from, your parents perhaps weren't particularly studious. I was the first one in my family to go to university and then my two sisters have subsequently gone. But it does worry me. I mean, why do you think that's the case with white working class boys like us? Uh, I think you've you've identified a couple of points personally. Um, family situations. So parents quite often did either... My dad did not go to school, full stop. He, he dropped out really early. My mum had to drop out. She actually got into a grammar school. So she was one of 13 and she was the eldest. So when her mum, my grandma, left the home and left uh, my granddad alone with 13 kids, she had to step up. And so she had to drop out of school and become a bit of a, a, a mum to her siblings. So I think that's one part of it. They didn't have, they don't see possibly the value of education. I think the second part is it wasn't cool to be clever when I was a kid. I don't know about you, Alex. It was... If you were the clever kid at Wesley High School, you got bullied. That's what happened. Um, it was seen as cool to be kicked out of class. It was seen as cool to be on report. It was seen as cool to be suspended from school, all of which I did quite often. And the funny thing was back then, Alex, and I still remember the head of year at the time, Mr. Rohn, saying this in front of me, in front of the head teacher, um, Mrs. Bryan, the deputy head, wanted me gone. She did not want me in school anymore. She said I was too disrupted to the top set. Mr. Rohn came in and said, there's no point kicking him out now because he's going to get good GCSE results and we need them at this school. <laughs> so You're the saviour, uh, the saviour of Wesley uh, High School. Uh, uh, yeah. <laughs> well, the, the funny thing was then, Alex, I thought as, as a student, I remember thinking this, I was 15 at the time, thinking I can do what I want. <laughs> I'm never going to get kicked out. That was it's a crazy situation to be in. <laughs> I shouldn't be laughing at that. It's funny. 
I know. It is very funny. I look back at it and laugh, and I think, how stupid was that as a situation? <laughs> I coasted was the best description of me in high school. I wasn't one of these kids that put loads of effort. I never did my whole work, and I used to get detention for it constantly. Um, and by the way, I'm, I'm not thinking this is big or clever right now. I'm just giving you facts of what actually happened. Um, like I said, I was on report quite a lot of the time, and I kind of knew I would get enough grades to get into Winstanley College, which I think at the time you needed, I don't know, maybe four A's, a couple of B's, something like that, and you would get in. I knew I'd get that in regardless, and there was no real incentive for me to push myself, which sounds so foreign to how I am now as an individual. I'd be thinking, well, I've got some intelligence, I've got some natural ability, I want to get all A stars. I was kind of like, well, I've got enough, and I was doing the bare minimum to get me through. I feel like I was. my life has been split into two, pre-age 17 and post-age 17. Um, I've probably got in with the wrong crowds in my teenage years. That didn't help me, certainly. Because uh, I always recall in primary school, in juniors, I was I was a model student, dead quiet, always studied hard. And, uh, but you are right, it was too easy for me in high school. I was given a, a golden platter and... There was no incentive for me to behave myself, to push myself hard. Yeah. I wanted to ask about your relationship with Nigel because you're the youngest, he's the oldest. We're in my family, I'm one of four. So I'm the oldest. So I'm in more like Nigel's position and you're in more of the position of my brother Ben. What was your relationship like with Nigel? How did he teach you to be a man? Distant was probably the best description of it um, for a large part of my life. Um, so the way my siblings look, you had. Nigel, Leslie, Nicola, and then a quite a decent size gap between them and Vicky and myself. So it was always us, me and Vicky, and them. Okay. There's a definite, definite divide between us. And we had different dads. These three had a different dad, and me and Vicky had the same dad. Um, so Nigel, by the time I was growing up and, and coming in, he was already 20. He was, I, I do recall one event where he was sat on the back fields with his friends. They were drinking beer and they had no rifle and were shooting birds. And I thought that was so cool when I was a kid. I thought, wow, look at him. And he was like, oh, look at my brother there. He's amazing. He hated me being around him, obviously, because he was the older brother. He sent me back in the house constantly. But my relationship was always distant. Um, once he had, once he'd left the house, um, we only used to see Nigel for a number of years at Christmas and birthdays and things like that. Um, he was struggling with alcohol abuse at the time. And my dad was quite harsh with him. My dad struggled with alcohol abuse in his younger years and managed to get through it. My dad was always really harsh with him. That's probably the reason we didn't see much of him, is the honest answer. So he'd, he'd absolutely rip him a new one when he came into the house. Look at the state of you. You stink. You need to sort yourself out. You, I got you that job at such a factory. What are you playing at? Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so it was always really distant. So in terms of, in terms of life lessons, uh, honestly, I can't say that he gave me many um, at all. Um, we had a, a frayed relationship, certainly. And I think that's what, his eventual death when I was 17, he was 34. I think that's what made it tougher to take that we'd grown apart as a family at that point in time. The only silver lining to that is we grew much closer as a family afterwards. So my sisters who have moved out and had their own kids and got married, they all tended to, to knuckle down together as a family again. Uh, we saw a lot more of each other for a little while. 
Yeah. With my with my brother, we've got 16 years age gap, so it's pretty much similar to your you and Nigel in 17 years. And I, I try I try to I try to guide my brother. I try to give him help. Do you do you mind sharing? And feel free if you don't want to share. But how did I, how did Nigel actually die? He died unfortunately alone in his flat uh, on the couch. Went to sleep and didn't wake up. The actual diagnosis was young adult death syndrome, which to give you a description of what that is, medics don't know. People go to sleep and don't wake up again, so there's no sign of a heart attack, no sign of obvious organ failure, etc. That was difficult. That was very difficult for my mum. Felt like no closure, didn't have a clue. I, I struggled to accept that as a prognosis. He abused alcohol for a long time, and I have no doubt that affected his health. Um, so uh, that was the, the official diagnosis, but I don't know. It still feels, I must admit, Alex, that's been difficult for the whole family to take because you don't feel like that book is ever closed. There's always that doubt of what actually did happen. But life moves on. Um, so you kind of accept that he's gone, he's not coming back. And you try and learn a lesson from, from his life and the decisions he made. How did that death change you as a man? Initially, raw anger. Raw anger, mate. Uh, really struggled with it initially. Um, got into a lot of fights um, when I was out drinking and things like that. Um, really didn't come to terms with it very well. I would say eventually, once I'd got comfortable with someone, and this someone was Tess, who's my now very long-term girlfriend, once I got comfortable with her, I opened up and finally spoke about my feelings. I was 20 at this point in time, possibly 21. Um, and that was the first time I'd, I'd let it out. I'd actually spoken openly out loud to somebody. That helped me deal with it. That was when I started then to get my head around, actually, Dale, it, it's it's not all about you. Because um, that's when I, I was being very selfish at one point. Time, oh, I'm upset because my brother's died. Um it's definitely not all about me. Um, and I started to come to terms with it. And then I started to actually then get into personal development and wanting to know more about what's going on up here um, rather than what's going on in here because I was definitely being led by anger and emotion rather than trying to understand why I had anger and emotion and what it was all about. Um, so long term, it was good and it made me a lot more rounded. I'd say it made me more of a man. Short term, it was it was hard to deal with. And it probably, I'd say in hindsight now, it made you realise your own mortality. It made you realise, actually, we're not here for very long. You don't want to upset other people when you realise the impact it has on their lives. I'm not just talking about dying and, 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 a, and a, a such catastrophic event like that. I'm talking about just generally having arguments with people and things like that. So I, I, would, I would love an argument when I was younger because I was so competitive Anybody, anybody who wanted it would have an argument, I, I, and I would, I would continue it for days if they wanted to continue it. I'm now so anti-argumentative; it's unbelievable. I'm like, life's too short. Let's just get on with it, and I'll, I'll keep each other happy. Dale had to make a very difficult decision to leave friends behind from his youth that weren't serving him. I met people that had very similar backgrounds to Dale on the council estate that I grew up on. Unfortunately, a lot of those people went down the path of drug addiction, went to prison or long-term unemployment. So Dale's story is very much a rare one. Was it the fact that Dale was the only man left in his group of siblings after his brother died? 
Was it the fact that Dale wanted or assumed a protector role? It serves as inspiration for people who come from a similar background to hear a story like Dale's. I remember in 2008 when I applied to work and live in New York as part of an internship program after university. I remember friends asking me at the beginning of the application process what I was going to do with myself after I left university and I told them I was going to live and work in New York for a year. About nine months later, I remember these same people speaking to one of my best mates at the time and asking them whether Alex was going out round Wigan tonight. And he told them in a matter of fact way, oh, Alex has gone to New York. Apparently, according to my mate, they were shocked by it. And my mate said to him, he told you ages ago he was going. They replied, yeah, but we didn't think he was being serious. For someone who enjoys proving people wrong, I took a lot of satisfaction out of that. Dale has done the same, as what he's done in becoming the director of an accountancy firm definitely wasn't expected of him. Death can have a big impact on our lives. It can either make us feel depressed or it can galvanize us to achieve. Dale definitely did the latter. And after many years of tireless work, Dale was then in a great position to be able to buy his parents their council house outright. I mentioned at the start about us as men caring a lot about financial success. The truth is, we all want to make money and excel in our work. But understanding what drives us to our definition of success is important. That's why the team and I have designed a simple, easy quiz that's going to help you learn a lot about yourself and help set realistic targets for success. It takes less than three minutes to complete. We as men can be incredibly successful, driven individuals, but how we get there is important to understand, particularly for our mental health. Through the man quiz, you'll answer questions about your identity as a modern man. The aim is to better understand who you are to achieve the results you want in your life and work. Click the link to the quiz in the show notes now. You never know, you might just learn something new about yourself that you didn't know before.